0: Something has been happening in our society over the last 75 years. Uh, There has been significant changes in the way people see themselves. Uh, And the categories of change that we particularly feel today are around sexuality and gender. Uh, Here's a graph of sexual identification from the United States. Uh, The numbers are similar for New Zealand, it's just a bit more complicated for me to produce a graph using Kiwi data, so I just went with this one. Uh basically you've got uh on the left there traditionalists people born before 1946 then the baby boomer generation generation x that's 65 to 80 the millennials 81 to 96 and then generation z as they're called 97 to 2003 and uh what that is is a list of numbers of people who will self and self identify as I belong to the sort of LGBT community. Uh, The significant thing to observe is that with each new generation there has been roughly speaking a doubling in the number of people who self-identify as LGBT. Uh, No doubt one of the factors in in a chart like that is a growing acceptance of the LGBT community in society at large and so people are more willing now to be counted than perhaps they were 50 years ago. But even in taking that into account, we have to recognise there's more going on here than just that. Uh, Erica Anderson, a psychologist, uh, leading US uh, professional working on the leading edge of gender medicine, who is transgender, to flatly say that there couldn't be any social influence in formation of gender identity flies in the face of reality. Teenagers influence each other. Thanks, Eric. Now, uh, those kinds of changes that are visible in a graph like that are also visible in our everyday lives. And one of the pressing issues in the public space is transgender rights. This isn't just an issue of what people do in the privacy of their own homes. It's very much a public issue, an issue of rights, social conventions... And laws. Now, no one should be bullied or shamed or mocked uh, for how they've responded to gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria, feelings of dislocation and disorientation, feelings that uh, your inner psychological gender doesn't align with your biological sex. Uh, in our personal interactions, we want to recognise that everyone No matter their views about gender identity or sexual preferences or any other aspect of their personality or life, everyone has been made in the image of God. That's what Christians believe. And so that bestows on everyone a God-given dignity that we want to honour and respect. We might not agree with everyone, but we don't need to be rude or abusive in our personal interactions. But... The issue of gender identity is is being pushed beyond personal interactions. It's very much an issue of public justice, civil rights. And that's the kind of area that I want to touch on a little bit this morning. But before we do that, let me catch you up uh, if you are new here or haven't been with us this month. Uh, We're taking four Sundays to think around this pressing cultural issue of personal identity very much connected to gender identity and sexual identity. And the tip of the spear of this cultural issue, it seems to have popped up almost out of nowhere, is the transgender movement. It would not have made sense to anyone a 100 years ago, probably not even 50 years ago, to say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. But it seems to make complete sense to people today. We will change the rules around sporting codes. Uh, We will uh, reorganise government. Now, I've been trying to show over the last two Sundays that the the way in which we see transgender issues in our media and our institutions, these are the elements that are, if if you like, in terms of our cultural iceberg, above the waterline. That, that's the stuff we can all see but below the waterline in our cultural iceberg are the ideas and the the reasoning uh, that that make the concept of a transgender person possible even plausible somewhere near that the very bottom of that cultural iceberg are ideas about our personal identity who I am who you are how we how we work out who we are and those ideas are often unexamined they're just Unconsciously taken for granted, and uh, a core idea in terms of personal identity is: you don't look out in, outside anymore; you you look inside to find out who you are. And of course, it's, there's nothing in principle wrong with looking inside. Personal exploration commendable, uh, self-reflection useful. The the examined life is is worth thinking about, uh, the alternative is far from attractive. Now, the modern approach to identity is in some ways a reaction against the sort of culture of conformity. But, you see, there are problems with the old way and there's problems with the new way. Now, I've been trying to do some reading, books, talks on the internet, trying to draw all that material and put some of it in front of you to be vaguely useful as we think about this cultural issue and as it presses in on us. And drawing on the, the wisdom of some of those writers... Now, here are the seven principles, I've set them each week, in terms of how identity is formed, the underlying ideas that we don't question but are shaping how we think about who we are. The best way to find yourself is to look inward. The highest goal in life is happiness. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. The world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated and certain aspects of a person's identity such as their gender, ethnicity or sexuality are of paramount importance. And those ideas are not just at work in the LGB community out there. Those ideas about identity are shaping us in here We aren't immune from being formed and moulded by our culture. Let me illustrate that for you. Take the first two items on that list. The best way to find yourself is to look inward. The highest goal in life is happiness. If you could ask your grandfather, did you have job satisfaction? Well, firstly, they might not understand the question, but assuming they did, many would say, yes, I had a good job that allowed me to buy our family home, feed and clothe and provide for my wife and children, to have money for our community and our church. Yes, I had a good job. If You ask people today, do you have job satisfaction? Oh, yes, I have a good job. It makes me happy that I'm able to use my skills and ability. I find that very fulfilling. Do you hear the difference? So your grandparents looked outward, but today we look inward. They were concerned with meeting responsibilities to other people. We look inward for personal happiness. Now, I'm not saying that old is better. I'm just saying, can you hear the difference? And why do you think the way you think? Because there are cultural ideas shaping us. Let me press a little bit harder. Three ideas powerfully work in our culture in terms of identity. The highest goal in life is happiness. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. Divorce in New Zealand was fundamentally altered when Parliament passed the Family Proceedings Act 1980, introducing in effect no-fault divorce. The cultural ideas behind that move? People should be happy. If I'm not happy in this marriage, I should be able to get out of it. I don't feel that it's morally wrong. To want a better life for myself. I know I made promises, but it's okay. I feel I can break that. I don't care about external authorities and what they think church, extended family, neighbours. I want out of this marriage. Now, marriage is best understood as a civil religious commitment between one man, one woman. For the procreation and raising of children. Of course, marriage should include mutual pleasure and companionship, but it's the first part that forms the building block of society, that gives government an interest in marriage, that the care of children. No fault divorce says, don't worry about the children, and actually don't think about uh, long term. Uh, It strips marriage of durability and security. Instead, marriage lasts as long as our feelings do. Or our spouse, for our spouse. And and it's no, if we don't have those feelings anymore, if I don't feel like I'm living my best life, then this is over. And so if marriage is merely based on our feelings for one another, and lacks any greater commitment and responsibility to children, if it's just really about how I feel in this relationship, why then prohibit two men or two women, from entering a legally binding contract called marriage. You see, it's no-fault divorce, not same-sex marriage, that first redefined what a marriage is in New Zealand. You see, that's a knife that cuts very close to many of us here. My point is that the underlying ideas of our culture and our way of thinking about no-fault divorce those ideas aren't very different that lead to thinking of same-sex marriage as viable. See, the ideas below the waterline of our cultural iceberg are shaping and influencing all of us, not just one particular group of people in society out there. So while we're looking out there at what our culture is doing, our goal is to see how our hearts and minds are working along similar lines. Because that will make us long for truth that is above and beyond our culture. We want to know what God tells us about our personal identity and our public responsibilities. Uh, Bruce Jenner, winner of the men's decathlon at the Montreal Olympic Games, 1976. That's when John Walker won his gold medal for the 1500 metres, He's a father to six children through three marriages, an icon of masculine virility. He sat down for a TV interview in 2015 and said, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. And so Caitlyn Jenner was announced to the world. In 2017, Jenner underwent cosmetic surgery and completed sex reassignment surgery all under the gaze of reality TV cameras. He is the poster child of a transgender movement, but hundreds and hundreds have followed him. Something that a few generations ago would have been almost unimaginable is today accepted and celebrated and is even shaping public policy in our government agencies. Now, there are lots of things that were once unimaginable but are reality today, and we call that progress. The emancipation of women, the right to vote, equal pay for equal work, we celebrate that as progress. The ongoing work against racism and redressing of past wrongs through Waitangi Tribunal, returning confiscated land, we celebrate the progress that have been made there. But not all progress is good. Uh, Just because it's different from the past doesn't necessarily make it better. And we have to recognise that it is progress, progress in technology that is allowing people to surgically alter their sexual anatomy and change their hormones. Now, that simply couldn't be done uh, 100 years ago. Technology is facilitating changes in human sexuality. But again, that's not a new thing. Uh, One of the key drivers in the sexual revolution of the 1960s was the arrival of the birth control pill. Technology was used to enable sex outside of marriage with a reduced risk of pregnancy. That is to say, the ideas at play in the 1960s, using technology to uncouple sexual activity from marriage, are they still at play as medical technology enables the uncoupling of psychological gender from the physical body. The strategy being promoted in our society to resolve gender dysphoria its not counselling to change the psychology to match the biology, but surgery to make approximations of change. It baffles me if someone has issues of anorexia or bulimia where they look in the mirror and think they're too fat, they don't like their body, we would say they have wrong ideas about their body and their mind. And so the therapy would be psychological counselling, not surgery, but it's the opposite approach with gender dysphoria. Hormones and surgery are presented as the ultimate solution. And the area of medicine is, is one of the places that the transgender movement is pushing hard for what they call public justice. Because being transgender isn't just a lifestyle decision, it's often a medical decision. And the public health system is being used for gender reassignment surgery. And the point of particular concern, public contention at the moment, is children being given puberty blockers and hormone uh, therapy. There's public debate. Is it right? Is it safe for children? Ministry of Health says it's safe. Uh, But in the UK, uh, just this year the NHS is shutting down its gender identity clinic for children after a review found it failed vulnerable children under 18 because it was rushing children into life-altering treatment. Finland, Sweden health authorities, they're changing the rules, they're making it harder to get this sort of medical intervention. And in what is a relatively short period of time, we already have hundreds of people, especially young people, who have had this kind of life-altering surgery and they now regret it. But it's too late. The damage is done. It can't be reversed. See, just because we have the technology, just because we can do something, doesn't necessarily mean we should. Now, these are medical practices that are happening in our public space. And as citizens, we will have opinions and perspectives and we will have votes to cast in elections and so forth. It is this realm of the political and the public where we're being confronted with transgender rights. Because fundamentally, a transgender person needs to be affirmed from the outside. Everyone needs to say this is who they are. And it is under the loud noise of the call for transgender rights that others are losing their rights. In particular, women are losing out. Uh, One feminist activist put it this way. My entire life work is fighting for the class of people who are oppressed on the basis of their biological sex, including atrocities like forced child marriage, infanticide of baby girls and female genital mutilation but because of the gender identity movement is now deemed transphobic even to label these victims women and girls protections based on biological sex are being eliminated from the law As I said last week, uh, the New Zealand government is at work on laws that could put pressure on churches and Christians to go silent on these issues of gender and sexuality. Just yesterday, uh, the Justice Minister announced that proposed hate speech laws have been scaled down. So, I don't think there's any current implications there, but there were potential of it. Back in February, uh, this year, conversion practices prohibition legislation came into law. In other words, the banning of conversion therapy. Now, I don't know anyone advocating for driving in a van, throwing a hood over some teenager's head, pulling them in and then taking them off to be programmed and detortured and something, something. That kind of conversion therapy idea is horrendous. But the legislation still has potential to reach all the way into a Christian church. The law forbids any kind of encouragement to change or suppress someone's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. So if someone came to me and said, I'm a Christian, I feel I have these sexual desires that don't seem right, or I'm confused about my gender, as a layperson reading the legislation, it sounds like I could encourage someone in the direction of homosexuality or being transgender, or cross-dressing, but it would be illegal to offer any encouragement to resist those impulses or desires. I don't want to overstate the situation. We'll wait to see if and when and how the law is actually applied. But this isn't happening in private. This is public. The politics and the public voice connected with the transgender movement is also fierce. Nothing is to be questioned or challenged. Yesterday's radical feminist will get a big telling off today from today's transgender advocate. Uh, Politicians are quick to line up on the right side of issues of gender and sexuality. Businesses are very keen to stay on the, the side of a vocal group who will quickly call boycotts. And as I said in the first week, the nature of the modern approach to personal identity means by looking inward to find who you are and and you are the one who validates who you are means that any voice from the outside, questioning, clarifying, that's not just an innocuous question, that's a personal attack, an attack on a person's very core identity. And because the real self is the inner self, you listen out for the language of violence and harm and victimisation being used when someone disagrees in words with a transgender advocate. It's violence to question them. You listen, you'll hear it in the news media. See, the language of physical assault is being co-opted into the experience of having someone question or oppose their ideas I described it as being fragile but that fragility also drives a fierce public response towards anyone who would question the transgender movement in public and of course the irony is that those who are transgender and are seeking shelter from discrimination and abuse as a political movement can pour forth some serious contempt for those who would question their narrative Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said about gender identity movement in the public realm. But but as I said each week, the most important thing we can do is, again, turn to the Bible and hear God's word to us as we face a complicated and confusing world. So let's have a quick look at Colossians chapter 3. And the first thing to see is that the desire for a new identity is a very biblical desire in a fallen world. Chapter 3, verse 1, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. A new identity, our true selves, are found through being united with Christ. His death on the cross was my death. His resurrection from the tomb On the third day means I've been raised. Our identity as Christian believers is tied up with events 2,000 years ago. Good Friday and Easter Sunday count for us. They define who we are. The world and our lives are substantially changed. But there's more to come, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, our personal identity is a gift from God. We didn't find it. We don't find it by looking deep into our hearts. It's something God gives through knowing Jesus. And our identity will be kept safe and secure by him. Uh, Secondly, this personal identity has a very public expression. See, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all that such things of these anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy lips, from your li- filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its Creator. See, being a Christian is not merely an inner private spirituality. Being a Christian is something that is on display to the world around us. Oh yes, there is a change of heart and mind and attitude and hope, but that inward change that Christ brings works its way out into the lives we live as Christian people. In dying and rising with Christ, believers have made a real and tangible break with a life we once lived. In the Apostles' language, we've taken off our old selves... And put on our new selves. And our new self is being constructed and developed and reformed in the image of our creator. What was lost in the Garden of Eden is being rebuilt in each Christian believer. And what does that reconstruction process look like? Well, it's not a surgical change. It's a spiritual change. With very real world alignment of our inner hopes and desires. We are to give no space, no air, no wiggle room to sexual immorality, to impurity, to lust, to evil desires and to greed. And this change on the inside shows itself in our relationships with others by, by ridding ourselves of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language and lying. Instead of those things, no, by contrast, we treat people Verse 12, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, perseverance, forgiveness, love. In fact, the apostle carries on in this letter, pointing out uh, even more change. Thankfulness to God uh, and faithfulness with wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters. Being a follower of Jesus brings inward, private, personal transformation But that cannot be hidden. There's such a fundamental change that it shows itself in our attitudes and our relationships. Our public life is a Christian life. So becoming a Christian is such a profound change of identity that it even trumps, verse 11, religious traditions, ethnic origins, economic privileges... All those racial, ethical, cultural, social distinctions, they still exist, but they all take a back seat to being in Christ. The Lord Jesus is all and is in all. With the best will in the world, the solution for the anguish of gender dysphoria will not come through hormones and surgery. That is literally just papering over the cracks in our humanity. One writer who converted to Christianity out of a gay lifestyle writes, I'd always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But actually the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. All Christians are called to holiness, no matter their sexual feelings. My new identity in Christ compelled me to live in obedience to God whether my temptations changed or not. Biblical change is not the absence of struggles but the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. As I've said, our personal interactions with all people should be marked by grace and kindness, whatever their views on gender and sexuality, everyone is living a broken life in a fallen world, despite the masks and the bravado. So everyone needs the good news about Jesus and his offer of a new life and a new identity for all and any who would be his followers. At the same time, we live in a public world of politics and medicine, of communities and institutions, and we have words and arguments to make in those places. Will they be heard? And yet we can look back in history and see Christians have made contributions to our society. Think of heroes like Wilberforce. And before them, those who started the orphanages. And before them, those who rescued the and before them, those who picked up infant babies discarded by their culture. Christians have done things and argued things in public, but have made a difference. We'll have to see. However we speak, wisdom dictates choosing our words carefully, knowing which battles are worth fighting and which situations are beyond us. But whether it's in public or in private, We are those who have died in Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And who we really are will be revealed for all to see when Jesus appears on that final day. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise that you give us a new identity. We surely needed it for our old life was a life of death. prisoners of sin and yet you give us new life in christ his death counts for us his resurrection is for us help us to be those who know that new identity and live in that new way with great hope and confidence and therefore give us a great message to a very needy world we ask in jesus name